we're going to finish the last part of chapter 9 in our study this evening. The title of the chapter is God is Perfect, and we began last Lord's Day to consider this attribute of God, His perfection. Our confession we read from the, the very first paragraph of chapter 2 states that the Lord our God is infinite in being and perfection. God is perfect. Just to recap a few things, when we say that God is perfect, we don't have in mind only a moral standard. We're not only saying that He's righteous just in another way. What we mean by saying that God is perfect is that He is complete in every conceivable way. Or to put it negatively, there is no lack in God. We saw first that because God is perfect, all of His works are perfect. Speaking generally, Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, His work, is perfect. Psalm 18 verse 30, As for God, His way is blameless. That's the same Hebrew word translated perfect and then blameless. Perfect being the positive sense. He is perfect. And then blameless would be negatively. You cannot bring a blame, a charge against God. There's nothing that you could say in any way about uh, uh, anything that God has done that would uh, imply that he, he needs more or could have done better or could have changed this or that. Everything about God and all of His works are perfect. And then we saw that especially His work in salvation is perfect. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, or he will bring it through to completion. That includes the accomplishment of redemption in Christ. What Christ did, if we want to think specifically about his what we call his humiliation, his earthly ministry, where he comes to take on human flesh, and to live and die in the place of sinners, everything that he did was perfect. It was complete. There's no lack in what Christ did to accomplish our salvation in his life and death and resurrection. Uh, we might say, uh, thinking of his, of his life, well, did he, did he have to live 33 and right around 33 and a half years? Yes, that's perfect. Um, should he not have lived longer? No, it was perfect. Um, so on and so forth. Everything that we could say about his, his life, his ministry, and what he's accomplished is absolutely perfect. His death made a full atonement for sins. There, there, there's not a single sin that has slid out from underneath the, the work of Christ. It's all finished and accomplished in what he's done. In his resurrection, it's, it's complete. That's where we see it. God, his Father, has vindicated him to show the work is done. There's nothing else to be, to be done. It's, it's finished. It's perfect. The redemption accomplished is perfect, but also the redemption being applied to us through our union with Christ by the indwelling Spirit is perfect. It couldn't get any better. The, all that Christ has done for us and in our place is applied to us perfectly and completely. There, there's no part of... of uh, us, our, our, our fallen state, our condition, there's nothing that we could say, well, right here, Christ's uh, re uh, redemption accomplished is not applied here or, or something is left still to be met with in our own works or actions or words. No, it's all completed when that work is applied to us. Regeneration, sanctification, glorification, all of the work that God does in salvation to us and in us it's perfect. It's perfect. And, and, and the good news is, is this is what Scripture teaches. It would be one thing for us to say, well, we, we believe He did a good job. We, we don't believe that there's anything that needs to be added to it or taken away from it. We, we judge it to be a good work. That would be one thing, and be, but be, it would be no ground to stand upon. The thing is, the Scripture teaches this. The Bible, God's Word, God tells us that the work is perfect. God has said it's complete. When we... When we drift into 
this, this thinking that, well, surely there's something I need to add, or, or tomorrow morning maybe I need to do a little more to bring myself a little into a, a more right standing with God. Well, what we are doing is we're denying what God Himself has said. The work is finished and complete in Christ. His saving work is perfect. So that's what we saw last week. Tonight we're going to finish this chapter by considering God's will. God's will is perfect. And that is the, the main heading, I believe, in the workbook. The will of God is perfect. To put it, the idea of the will of God in human terms, the will of God is what God wants to take place. That's how we would say it. We often say, I want this, or I want to do. But you'll often read, perhaps in old writers, they would say, I will this, or they, they might say, I would that this be. What they're saying is, I want this to be accomplished. When we speak of God's will, we're, we're talking about what God wants to take place, what God wants to happen. The will of God is often described as either hidden or revealed. Hidden or revealed. There is the, the hidden, or we might say the decreed will of God, where God uh, sets forth in His eternal decree all things whatsoever come to pass. Everything that will ever happen is a part of God's hidden, decreed will. That's one way to think of God's will. The other way to think of God's will we, we refer to as His revealed or prescribed will. All that He would have us to know and to do. We don't know God's hidden will. We don't know what He has decreed to take place moment by moment. We don't know what God has determined will happen in, in, the, in all of the affairs of the world tomorrow or two months from now, or six months from now, or ten years from now. As a matter of fact, no human being has that information. We don't know. What we do know is God's revealed will, what He would have us to know and do. We do know that. And it's that second perspective on God's will that we're, we're talking about this evening. We're not talking about His hidden or the, the God's will of decree or His decretive will. We're not talking about that. We're talking about what God has revealed for us, God's will for us, that which God would have us to know and do. We will not stand in the judgment and give an answer for what we did with God's secret or hidden will. Because we can't know that. We will give an answer for what we did with God's revealed will. What He told us He wanted us to do and what we did with that. And that's why it's so important that we understand that the will of God in this sense is perfect. Now let me read from the workbook and then we'll get into some scriptures. It says, The will of God is perfect because it's founded upon His perfect and most holy character. The implications of this truth are tremendous. God's purpose and plan for us is worthy of absolute trust. We should never lean upon our own understanding or seek to do that which is only right in our own eyes. Rather, we should trust in God and obey His Word, the Holy Scriptures. And of course, we recognize the language there from Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own, on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Look to Him, seek Him, ask Him, go after His ways. In everything that you do, in everything that you do, look first to God for direction and guidance. And when you do that, He will make all of your paths straight. That's the idea. Don't lean on your own understanding. Lean upon Him. So the first, I've broken it up into headings that are not in the workbook, but uh, so the first topic is God's will described, and we, we see this in Romans chapter 12. So turn to Romans 12, verse 2. God's will described. 
Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Or you, you, you might read it with the verbiage uh, turned around, uh, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Here we have God's will described for us in using three words. First, we see that God's will is good. That is, God's will is, uh, we, uh, synonyms might be suitable or fitting or beneficial. God's will is these things. His will is good. His will is acceptable. And that word acceptable is literally good-pleasing or well-pleasing. The, 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 the will of God is well-pleasing. When we hear the word acceptable, a lot of times we would use that as, as describing the bare minimum. Uh, we are talking this morning about you know the Waffle House. Sometimes you get food and you say, it's acceptable. I've been here this long. I'm not taking it back. I'm just going to eat it. It's acceptable. I'll, 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 I'll put up with it. That's not what this word means as acceptable. This word is well-pleasing or that which actually brings pleasure. The will of God brings pleasure. Now we would ask, well-pleasing to who? Acceptable to who? I, I think here the answer is to God. God's will is pleasing to Him. And God's will is perfect or complete, not lacking. What Paul's saying here is, as our minds are renewed and we are transformed, we begin to live differently. We, we begin to live according to a new standard, and that standard is the will of God. That's the way we live. And then, by living that way, we get to experience and, the word here is prove or show the uh, strength and validity of the will of God manifesting that it is in fact good and acceptable and perfect. Imagine uh, you, some of you children are in the woods, you're playing, you want to build a, a bridge over the creek. And maybe one of the bigger kids gets a bunch of limbs and throws it over the creek and says, okay, come on, let's walk across the bridge. Well, some of the others might be thinking, ah, I'm not so sure this is actually going to hold us all up. You know, I'm, I'm not, I don't think this is really strong enough. Well, then the, one of the bigger one goes and stands in the middle of the bridge and bounces on it and says, see, I'm proving the bridge. I'm showing it will hold us up. It is a good bridge. It is an acceptable bridge. It is complete. It'll get us across the creek. That's, that's the picture here. There, there are godly principles instilled in the world which even the lost can recognize are beneficial and helpful. Uh, the, the, the great example is, you know, you shall not murder, okay? We're all glad, all, all unregenerate men all over the place right now would agree, I'm glad nobody's murdering me. That's a good principle to live by. We agree with that. But only the godly, as they're transformed by the renewing of, of, of their minds, our minds, we are the only ones who get to truly prove and experience the vindication of, of God's perfect will in our own hearts. They, they, will, they will see it as good, but very often they have to find some other uh, explanation for it. But for us, we can say, yes, our God's will is truly perfect. I've proven it. I've put it to the test. We, we, we show that it is what God says that it is as we live according to His will. And the question is asked here, how should the description of God's will in Romans 12.2 motivate us to live a life of obedience to the will of God? How should this motivate us? Well, I would say if there's anything in us that desires to please God, to live a life that's profitable, to live a life that is good and acceptable and complete, perfect, well, then we don't have to look any further than God's revealed will. Christians, we, we ought to have that desire. I, I want to do what's good. I want to do what's pleasing to God. I want to, do, I want to have that life that is, that is perfect and complete. I want to follow Him. I want to please Him. Well, you don't have to make it up on your own. 
We're not left to run off by ourselves and come up with a scheme that will produce that. He's told us. He's revealed it to us. So that's, that's a motivation. That, that desire in us motivates us to live according to God's will. So there's God's will described. Good, acceptable, perfect. Then we have that same truth applied. God's will applied. Quoting again, the following scriptures give us insight regarding how to respond appropriately to the good, acceptable, and pleasing will of God or perfect will of God. If we, if we truly believe that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect, then these are some things that will, that will happen. These are some of the fruits. The first one is Matthew 6, 9, and 10. So let's turn there. Matthew 6, 9, and 10, our Lord giving instructions for prayer. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we believe that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect, then we will pray your will be done. We will ask Him to bring to pass His will in the earth. We know, speaking in an ultimate sense, what our world lacks is conformity to the will of God. That's the problem. The problem in all of, all of the human race is rebellion against God's will. People do not want... God's will. Well, there is no such rebellion in heaven. In heaven, it is as God wills, perfectly and completely. And therefore, and, and again, that is in this sense of the revealed will of God, not the decreed will, but the revealed will of God. The problem is men reject the will of God. And so the all-encompassing petition that would cover all of the fruit of the fall in, in the created realm, we want to cover all of it. The, the petition is, your will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. That covers everything. Now, we will get, you'll get more specific in your prayers. But any time you're praying for any individual circumstance or uh, issue to be uh, brought into conformity to the will of God, you're, you're, you're praying under this, position, this petition, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're, we're seeking. So you'll pray to that end. Now turn to Psalm 40, verse 8. Psalm 40, verse 8, not only will we pray, Psalm 40, verse 8 says, I delight to do your will. Oh, my God, your law is, is within my heart. In other words, we will, if we believe that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect, then we will delight in it. Now, of course, we have remaining corruption, and so we find that sometimes we're, we push against what God has revealed, we push against His will. That only leads to hardship. That only produces negative things in our lives. That, that is very often when we are miserable, when our consciences are not clear before God, it's because we have pushed against His revealed will. Many, many times we know that we're doing it, and we continue to do it. But rather, if we really believe that the will of God was good and acceptable and perfect, then we would delight in it. It would make us glad to do His will. And then Ephesians 6, 5 and 6 is the next passage. Ephesians 6, verses 5 and 6. 
Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as man-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. If we believe that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect, then we won't just do it, but we will do it from the heart. Why? Because we delight in it. Because we have delighted, the action will then come from our heart. It, it, it will be what we want to do. Remember what we... I, I read from John Owen several weeks ago about the affections. When we do things that God commands us to do without the heart, without the affections, we're just doing because we're supposed to do, we effectively do nothing. Because we're acting from a principle other than a gospel principle. It is hypocrisy. What God desires is to have His will fixed in our hearts and our minds, that is our affections. He wants us to delight and then from that delight, obey from the heart. Do the will of God from the heart. There's no excuse for disobedience, but there's greater sin in disobedience than in outward obedience only. In our confession, there's a point made about, I think it's in the chapter on good works, that the good works of unregenerate men are sin. But it would actually be worse sin if they didn't do the good works at all. So those are, that's the idea, that we are to do it regardless. But as Christians, we should be doing it, we could say true Christian obedience or gospel obedience, as we've learned about, is from the heart. Our affections are changed so that we delight to do the will of God. And that will happen if we really believe that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. The proper response in true faith to what Romans 12, 2 teaches, will be a heart progressively affectionate for the will of God, and then our own will is going to be directed to and conformed to that will, and we will also pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, I, I use this, this phrase, progressively affectionate. Again, we are not... Per perfected we're not glorified and we will find at times that the will of God is met with a little bit of resistance progressively we become more and more affectionate I would say by proving what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God when you give yourself to it you prove it you show you validate it and it, it, it's all the more strong in your own experience and you you go on in in that pathway if you're constantly living at a place of resistance or if you're uh, if, if there's maybe a single point of consistent or persistent resistance to some little place of the revealed will of God then that's going to make all of these other areas of the revealed will of God uh, suspect to you you're, you're all of a sudden you're sort of backed in a corner I, I'm really not sure now because I've doubted this one little thing when when you give in to the will of God in every area it becomes more it proves itself more and more and more and you're able to see over time progressively that it is good and acceptable and perfect so that's God's will described and then God's will applied and then the next heading that I have uh, created is God's will exemplified. God's will exemplified. In every area, or as in every area of Christian living, we have no better illustration than in the example given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus, we look at His life, we say, wow, what a life. Well, it was, it was merely a life lived according to the will of God. Turn to John chapter 4. Verses 31 to 34. John 4. Verse 31 
to 34. Christ has had the interaction with the woman of Samaria at the well. That has uh, come pretty much to a conclusion. Now the disciples have returned. In verse 31 it says, Meanwhile the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What, what, what's the meaning here? What he's saying is that doing the will of God was for him life-giving. It was a, a strengthening power in his life. Now that doesn't mean as, a, as, a, as, as true men, maybe I should go to the imitation, for us, desire for conformity to God's will should be a stronger force in us than any temporal appetite. Desire for conformity to God's will should be a stronger force in us than any temporal appetite. Now this doesn't mean that humanly speaking we just we can say, well I'm just not going to eat food, I'm just going to do the will of God and I'll live physically forever. That, that, I, I wouldn't suggest trying that. But there are times, especially in, in uh, service to the Lord or ministering in, in uh, hard circumstances where you're, you're not even physically eating according to a normal pattern, but somehow you are sustained. And you, you look back and you think, how, how did I keep going? How did I make it through? I, I'm not, I don't even feel hungry. And, and I think that's what the Lord is happening here. He's, he's been strengthened by the Spirit, and, and that is carrying along His physical body for a time. But again, desire for conformity to God's will should be a stronger force in us than any temporal appetite. It doesn't just have to be food. Several weeks ago we looked at 1 Corinthians 8.13 where Paul said, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Here, his appetite for meat is subjugated to, is, is submitted to his desire to please the Lord by not stumbling a brother. The will of God is that I not stumble a brother. So if that means I don't eat meat, fine, I don't eat meat. I desire to eat meat. My body wants to eat meat, but I desire the will of God more. That's what he's saying, and that's, that's what it ought to be for us. Sensuality. Sensuality, or being driven in all of life by the senses of our flesh, is usually the combustion chamber of our living. In other words, that sensuality, the desires of the flesh, is usually what drives us. It is what drives carnal men. It's the power behind all of our choices and our actions. Am I hot or am I cold? Are my feet comfortable or do they hurt? Am I hungry or am I full? Is this salty or is it sweet? Is it going to make me happy or is it going to make me sad? That, that, those kinds of things very often dictate our, our lives. They drive us in all of our decisions. But that should not be. Instead, the will of God should be the driving force. What does God desire? What is God's will? That should drive us no matter what it costs us. And that was what's essentially our Lord is saying in John 4. That, that was true for the man Christ Jesus. The will of God drives me. Period. It's time to eat. Not for me. It's time for me to do the will of God. Doing the will of God, I can trust. Food time will come. God will take care of that if I give myself to His will. We see it again in John 5.30. You can flip over there. John 5.30. Our Lord again, He says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. So our, our Lord, we see here in His humiliation, did not seek His own will. He sought the will of His Father. And who better to testify to the goodness 
acceptability, and perfection of the will of God than the Son of God. This is the way He lived. Take, take His word for it. Or do we believe him a liar? Do we, do we believe that he made some mistakes so that maybe it would have worked out better for him? If you wouldn't have followed the will of your father so closely, you might not have ended up in that whole crucifixion ordeal. Well, he would say, well, this is this has resulted in my, my being exalted and my, my name being exalted above every name and my glory and the salvation of sinners and the, the praise of God's glorious grace. That wasn't a bad idea. It's the, it is, is the, the purpose and, and idea of of the ages, it worked out well for him. It was good for him. So, so how can we imitate this if we see this in our Lord? I, I, uh, three, three things. First, I think we, like him, we need to recognize our status as sent ones. He was sent to, the will, to do the will of his Father in his, in his incarnation. We also are not on our own mission. We are sent ones. We, we have been commissioned by another, just as He was. Secondly, we need to acknowledge our Savior who bought us. He has purchased us with the cost of His own blood. He rules over us. He's our Master. We are His slaves. And we are stewards of His grace. We are not the creators of our own grace. We are only stewards sent on a mission by the One who bought us. And therefore, we are to yield our hearts to Him. This is how we become imitators. Yield our hearts to Him. Seek to have your affections increased for God in Christ by the Holy Spirit. When your affections burn for Him, then your will will be rerouted to do His will. And when your will is rerouted, then you will act according to His will. But again, it, it, it must begin in our affections. Knowing God and knowing Christ and what Christ has done for us and seeing the perfect will of God displayed in all things. Again, that always takes us back to the Word of God where we see these things unfolded throughout history. We are not losers if we do the will of God. We, we don't lose. So that was God's will exemplified. The next thing we see is God's will unveiled. God's will unveiled. Where do we see this will of God unveiled or made known? I, I just alluded to it, but the note in the, the book says, one of the most important truths in Christianity is that the will of God is revealed first and foremost through the Word of God, that is, the Scriptures. Like the will of God, the Word of God is perfect because God is its author and its preserver. And then we have three passages that remind us of the role of Scripture in revealing God's will to us, and also the perfection of God's word in that regard. So let's turn to, to Psalm 19.7. We're looking to see the role of, of God's word in revealing God's will to us and also the perfection of it in that regard. Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now these are parallel statements. So we have law and testimony. Those are both references to God's revealed will, specifically in His law, His commandments. And then we have the, the, the description of it. God's revelation in Scripture is perfect, and in the second statement, it's sure, it's complete, it's without error, and it's certain, it's fixed, it's a, it's a firm foundation. When we resort to God's will revealed in His Word, there will be no gaps left in our living. There will be no needs left unmet. His will is perfect. We will not set ourselves to this task of of conducting our lives according to God's will and come to the end of the matter and say, you know what, God's will made provision for all of these things, but there's this one area over here that's just, it's just not addressed. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm just left to myself in that one. You won't find that. It is perfect. It meets all of the needs. And God's word, God's will makes the simple wise. It gives us certain 
sure, immovable, universal principles by which to live. And it's those principles, certain, sure, universal, unchanging principles, it's those kinds of things that, that are going to apply across the board. Every situation, that, that nothing is going to be left untouched. Living according to God's will gives us a strong footing to stand on in all of life. It's perfect. It is sure. The next passage is Psalm 12, 6. Psalm 12, 6. And, and while you're turning, hopefully you see the theme in, in, in the way that this study works. As you look at the, the attribute and then you run quickly to the application, and the application almost always brings us back to God's Word. There, we must live in constant interaction with God's Word. Psalm 12, 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. Here we see God's Word is pure, free from blemish, free from error. Here's a statement that's bad grammar. Nothing in all of God's revealed will is not absolutely perfect. Or to put it positively, everything that God has revealed of His will in His Word is absolutely perfect. We are never on shaky ground or near shaky ground when we resolve to live according to God's perfect will. Ever. It's firm. It's sure. It's absolutely perfect. We were talking earlier today about sinners in the hands of an angry God. Their foot slideth in due time. Those who walk according to God's will are not on a slippery path. It's not shaky. The foot slides. We get slippery when we step off of the path of God's will. It's perfect. They're pure words. And then 2 Timothy 3.16 is the third passage. Second Timothy 3.16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired or breathed out, expired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Here Paul says that Scripture, which we've seen, reveals God's will is Profitable. That's a, a synonym would be good, but it's profitable to these certain ends. It's good to these ends for teaching. God's revealed will in His Word sets down the truth, the teaching. Here it is, the doctrine. But also His Word is good for reproof. God's will or God's Word that gives us His will exposes our errors. It shows us where we have been thinking and acting wrongly. God's Word is profitable for correction. It doesn't just expose the error and leave us there, but it, does, it, it exposes the error, but it will also bring us back to the right way. It will correct us if we will give ourselves to it. And then also, it doesn't just get us back on the path and say, all right, good luck, but it's also profitable for training in righteousness, ongoing guidance and the formation of habits. It doesn't leave us. It goes with us and, and carries us. It's profitable to these ends. We don't have a need in any area of life live to God's glory that cannot be met by God's Word. His Word is perfect, His will is perfect, and His Word perfectly reveals His perfect will. Now since this is true, how should we live? The next heading is God's unveiled will applied. According to... The workbook says, according to the following scriptures, what should be our attitude and response to this truth? And we have five texts. I want to read them, and then we'll just ask, what should be our attitude? What should be our response? The first is Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Turn there. Psalm 1. Verses 1 and 2. 
How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. From this passage then, what should be our attitude? I would say our attitude should be one of delight. We should delight in the law of the Lord, the revealed will of God in His Word. And then what, should, what is the response to God's revealed will in His Word? Meditate day and night. If you believe that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect, that the will of God is perfectly revealed in God's perfect Word, and you don't want to wander around aimlessly in life wondering if you're pleasing God or not, then you will be meditating upon God's Word day and night. Some people secretly, I think, like to wander aimlessly. They puff themselves up by pretending that they have a life so hard or so special that God has not provided guidance for them. And that, that sort of gives them a little bit of a, sort of a, a headline and a news story to carry around with them everywhere they go. Um, the, the, the term that we sometimes use at my house is drama queen. Okay, don't be a drama queen or drama king. These people, this type of person, actually meditates day and night on their own problems and on their own life. And they're always going to wander around aimlessly like no answers can be found for them. And that's sort of their badge. Oh, it's just, I don't know. I just, ah, everything is, ah. you know, that's how they act. It's just constantly. When, when other people are thinking, there's, there's a word for that. There's, there's, there's revelation for that. But I think some people kind of like that, that, that they carry that around with them. But hopefully we don't like that. We don't want to wander aimlessly. I don't want to not walk according to God's will. I don't want to wander aimlessly. I want to know that every step that I'm doing in every moment of my day is pleasing to the Lord. That's what I want to know. So where do I find that? Well, I have to go to His Word and meditate upon it. So, so the attitude is delight, and then we must meditate. And, and you will. I should say... You do meditate day and night on what you delight in. We're all already doing it. If you delight in the will of God, the Word of God, then you will meditate upon it day and night. If you delight in something else, you're meditating upon it day and night. This is what we do. So that's the first one, delight and then meditate. The second text is Psalm 119, verses 47 48. Forty-seven and forty-eight. I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. And I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. Here, the, again, the attitude is one of delight and one of love. I, the, the, the writer here loves God's commandments. And what's his response? The first phrase is, he says, I lift up my hands. Now this could be many different things. He could be saying, I lift up my hands in praise. Uh, the, the picture could be lifting up the hands as, as if longing to embrace or, or desperately seeking or needing uh, God's grace according to His commandments or to live according to His commandments. But the idea is there's this earnest desire displayed physically for the revelation of God. I need it in, in however way that, that might be taken. He's lifting up the hands, showing His desire, and then again, meditation. I will meditate on your statutes. We must give our minds to the Scriptures and pour the Scriptures into our minds. Meditation. The, turn to verses 127 and 128 of this same psalm. Psalm 119, 127, and 128. Therefore I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. Therefore I esteem right 
all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. So what's the attitude here to God's revealed will? Love, I love your commandments. Above fine gold, we could say treasuring of God's commandments. And then the response is esteeming the commandments right. I esteem right all your precepts. Account all God's commandments, all God's precepts as right. Give no credence to thoughts of doubt or questions of validity. Put to death a skeptical spirit with regard to the Scriptures. What it says is right. Period. End of, dis end of discussion. What God's Word, or we have to resolve in ourselves to say, what God's Word says about the issue is what I believe about the issue. People want to ask, well, what do you think about this? <laughs> it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what God has said, period. End, end of discussion. And the other thing, the other response is to hate every false way. Hate every false way. Develop what I call a spiritual gag reflex to every way that is opposed to God's Word. Now, we, we have to be careful because very often we, we, we start by developing a spiritual gag reflex to people as they are opposed to God and not really the, the ways in which they live. We, our, we're, we're, our war is not against flesh and blood. We, we're not haters of, of men, but the ways that are opposed to God and His Word. And we, we see things like that unfolding in our society that, that, that basically conditions all of life in ways that are opposed to the revealed will of God. And we, we are reaping many of the, the benefits, or not benefits, the consequences of that. And we, we should say we, we hate this, not because it's um, economically unprofitable. That, that's, the, that's the fruit of not living according to God's word. We hate every false way. We love the true ways. We love God's ways. The fourth text is Ezra 7, verse 10. Ezra 7, 10. We've seen this one before, describing Ezra the priest himself and his habit with regard to the law of God. Ezra 7, 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it, to teach his statutes and his ordinances in Israel. What was Ezra's attitude? He had a heart set. Other, other language from Scripture for this idea of a heart set to study the law of the Lord are phrases and pictures like a pure heart or a single heart, a heart of devotion, not drawn in a bunch of different ways. Well, I'll, I'll govern this part of my life according to the Word of God, but, but over here I'll, I'll govern myself according to other principles. No, that won't work. That is to reject the will of God because we are to esteem all of God's ways as right in every area of life. Our attitude needs to be one of, of a heart of devotion and then the response with Ezra's example is to study and to practice and to teach. And then the last text is 2 Timothy 2.15. 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. What's the attitude? I would say an attitude of diligence, an attitude of eagerness, an attitude of zeal with regard to the word of God, yes, but, but being found by God as unashamed. This was the attitude of the Apostle Paul. He, it was, we were, me and Cody were talking several weeks ago about this. Paul's when you read how Paul describes his own attitude, his mentality, his life, the Apostle Paul was a man racing as fast as he could to the judgment seat. I want to be presented before my God as an unashamed workman. And he lived that way, it just hungry for that moment to be called. And all of his life was full of busyness because he knew, I'm immortal until I finish the work. And when the work is completed, I will be gone. And that was his, that was his attitude. Diligence, eager, ze zealous 
to be presented before God as unashamed. If that's his attitude, then how does he say we should live in light of that? Handle accurately the word of truth. Love for God and desire to live according to His will demands that we all be students of the Word. And our great need to be conformed to God's will demands accuracy and precision in our study. This is a pastoral text, but that doesn't mean the rest of us can say, well, I can handle the Word of God however I want to. No, we should all say, I want to know it rightly. Uh, commentaries and books that help us understand the Word of God, those are not just things found in a pastor's home or a pastor's study. Our home, we should have that stuff. We, we, and we should be telling our children, learn the book of books and all, all that you can. Take your pick and learn God's Word. We want to be precise in our study because we want to know God's will. God's will is perfect and it's found there. In conclusion, I've said this Many times, when you are walking according to the prescriptions for life found in God's Word, you never have a reason to fear or worry that your pathway will not be marked out by His blessing and care and provision. In other words, when you are walking according to what God has prescribed in His Word, you have every confidence that you have His constant blessing and care and provision. Every confidence. But if you take your foot one step in one area off of God's prescriptions, regardless of the reason, you immediately have every reason to fear that your pathway will be marked out by His strong arm of chastening and discipline. It will not be easy. You can't just pick one little area of life and say, well, I'll take difficulty here as long as God gives me ease and blessing and provision over here. No, it doesn't work like that. It's all of it or none of it. You step off in one area, you're going to get the chastening rod. You're going to get the discipline. It's going to be difficult. And you have every reason to expect that. But if you walk according to God's prescriptions, you have every reason to be confident. No reason to fear. Again, I am immortal until God is finished with me. Nothing can stop me. Nothing can hinder me. Nothing can slow me down if I'm walking in his, according to His prescriptions. That's the way we should think. God's will is perfect because God is perfect. If we would be near to God, then we must walk in His ways. We, we, we desire that intimate, close communion, right? Well, well, where is God? Well, God is walking in His ways. You want to be near God, you've got to walk in His ways. You've got to be where He is. He is consistently near to all of those who will forsake their own way and walk in His ways. And so let's be that kind of people by His grace. By His grace. We cannot do it by ourselves. We cannot change ourselves. We cannot conform ourselves. We can't get our lives cleaned up. We can't get our act together. We cannot do any of that on our own. It's His grace. If you hear, you hear all this and you say, well, I'm in a mess. You don't run away from Him. You run to Him. That's where the blessing is. That's where the provision is. He must do it or we will fail. Let's... Pray together.